You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna okay we're gonna get to Philemon one day. Okay, we will. Uh, we're gonna swing back to Philemon, but I want to do a different series right now um, for us, given just what God is doing in WCC. So I want to I want to offer some thoughts and some direction for us uh, to consider what it means for withness to be our witness, and we'll uh, talk about that in just a few moments. Um, so if you have your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter twenty-five. If you have your YouVersion app, if you have YouVersion, go to YouVersion, click events. Under events, you know, you should, if you have your location settings on your phone, there should be pins that drop. You'll click Williamsburg Christian Church. You'll open up the notes. You can save that, and you can follow along with me as well. But Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46, we're going to read a lot together. I'm going to try and do double duty. I'm going to try and control the uh, PowerPoint as I read here because there was just way too much um, for me to try and uh, just to, like throw at Sherry Speed. So I wanted to to relieve her of that burden this morning. So Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46. Here's the scene. All right, the scene is toward the latter part of Jesus' ministry, toward the very end. And he's talking about the Son of Man coming back. He's talking about return. And and Son of Man, real quick, in the Hebrew Hebrew mind, is a royal and powerful image. Okay, are you with me? In the Hebrew mind, Son of Man is a royal and powerful image. It's an image of power. I don't want you to lose that, okay? So, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Everybody say throne. See, it's it's an image of power. All the nations, everybody say all the nations. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another. He will separate nations. All right, Separate them one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king, everybody say king. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When, when do we see you a stranger and take you in or, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, everybody say least of these. Whatever you did for the least of these. Least of these meaning the kind of the worst of these descriptions. Like the most hungry, the most thirsty, the most imprisoned. Like whatever you did for like the bottom end of even these social descriptions. Whatever you did for the least of these. Brothers and sisters of mine, everybody read it with me. You did to me. The word is to me. In the Greek, it's a personal pronoun. It's to me. Some of your translations say for me. It's to me. Which makes sense because Jesus kept talking about him being the one. You with me? Don't lose the to me in this. 
All right. Then he will say, verse 41, to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are accursed, in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. And then they'll answer, Lord, when, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and, and not help you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, everybody read with me, you did not do to me, they'll go away into eternal punishment for the righteous and into eternal life. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to unpack this particular lengthy text. We're going to unpack it in some detail. I'm not going to unpack it in detail today. I'm going to give you a big picture of some things today. And then we're going to fly 30,000 feet in the air, and then we're going to come down over the next several weeks right where the text is so you can see what the text, I think, at least I can share with you what I think the text is saying. Here's where I want to go today. Historians tell us that one of the greatest reasons Christianity flourished in the first few centuries of its existence was not because of their preaching and not because of their music. It wasn't because of their programs and it wasn't because of their buildings. It wasn't even because of their doctrine, as important as that is. Historians tell us that one of the reasons why the early church flourished the way that it did within the first few centuries is because of how they loved the sick, how they loved the poor how they loved those in need, how they welcomed the stranger, how they loved the foreigners, how they took care of the widows, how they took care of the imprisoned. Matter of fact, so much so, and I've shared this with you before because it's one of my favorite quotes, Aristides, this early Christian convert from Athens, he was a well-respected philosopher in Athens, probably actually heard Paul speak when you think about the timing. Um, which I I just put together because I didn't know that was what the big question was. He became a Christian, and he then took it upon himself to write to the Roman Emperor Hadrian, who was not a Christian, who did not believe that Christianity was a good religion, didn't even believe it to be a religion at all, uh, because it only believed in one God in three persons rather than multiple gods. And so he wrote to the emperor to try and explain to him that the Christians weren't as crazy as it sounded like with this whole eat the body and drink the blood and... All, you know, the stuff that sounds weird. Like, he he was trying to say, look, they're not what you think they are. So he wrote this to them, and he said this. He said, Christians love one another. That's his writing. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If a man has something, he gives freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, Christians take him home and are happy. As though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers and sisters in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit of God. And if they hear that one of them is in jail or persecuted for professing the name of their Redeemer, they will give him what he needs. It is possible they bail him out if it's possible. If one of them is poor, listen to this, and there isn't enough food to go around, they all fast for several days to give him the food he needs. Come on now. This is really a new kind of person. 
There's something divine in them. That was the witness. That kind of solidarity, that kind of empathy, that kind of compassion. As Christians began to serve the hungry, the poor, the sick, outsiders began to take notice, and the gospel spread by fascination like wildfire. The gospel didn't spread by coercion and legislation. The gospel spread by compassion and love. And so Tertullian, who was an African church father in the second century, one of his writings said, It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. He didn't say it's us winning arguments. He didn't say it's us drawing lines in the sin of morality and virtue. He didn't say it was us winning a Bible bowl and proving all the other ones wrong. He said, what branded us in the eyes of our opponents, the one thing they could not refute is that we took love seriously. We needed to give integrity to our confession that Jesus is Lord. That's what branded us. And it was true. Because by the late 4th century, an opponent of Christianity guy by the name of Emperor Julian. He was actually known in circles of in Emperor Julian the Apostate, which I've always found to be an interesting way to brand a dude, like Julian the Apostate. It's like an old $10 church word. He verbally disciplines his pagan priests for not keeping up with the Christians. He says, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, talk about his pagan priests, the impious Galileans, which was a slanderous term for Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, read this with me, but ours as well. Everyone could see that our people lack aid from us. Come on now. This is the emperor. Everyone looks at his pagan priest and says, we got poor people in our community. We're not getting it done. And the problem is that the Christian sect is, is growing and flourishing because they're not only taking care of their poor, they're taking care of ours. They're making us look bad. Christians weren't persecuted because they were moral people. Christians were persecuted because in the eyes of the emperor, they were bad Romans. They were citizens of a different kingdom. They took love seriously. They took hospitality seriously. Compassion seriously. They took their confession seriously. This was the witness. Now I could go on listing writings from other church leaders like John Chrysostom in the third century, the monastics in the Middle Ages, Martin Luther in the 16th century, I'm going to quote in a minute. And that'll be the subject of a whole other conversation over the next several weeks. But there's something else, and this is where I wanted to go today. The early church genuinely believed that to embrace those who were considered the last, everybody say the last, the least, the left out, and the lonely. Early church believed that when they embraced the last, the least, the left out, and the lonely, that they weren't just embracing fellow neighbors, they were embracing Christ himself. Are you with me? Come on, you with me? Because what did Jesus say? Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done to what? to me. So for them to love the poor, to enter into solidarity of the helpless, to enter into the solidarity of the displaced, to enter into the solidarity of the oppressed, was to enter into solidarity with Christ himself. 
To welcome the stranger was to welcome Jesus. To welcome the foreigner was to welcome Jesus. To welcome the hungry was to welcome Jesus. To welcome the thirsty was to welcome Jesus. To welcome the oppressed was to welcome Jesus. Because they believed that if Christ couldn't be found anywhere in the world, if he was lost in your room and he was lost in a church building, if Christ wasn't found anywhere, they believed with everything in them based on what Jesus taught in Matthew 25 that Christ can always be found with the marginalized, that Christ can always be found with the last, the least, the left out, and the lonely, that Christ can always be found in the company of the poor. And they knew that if we want to be with Christ... Sure, we may find them in a song, we may find them in a sermon, we may find them in a small group, but if we really want to be with Jesus, we'll find them in the margins. We'll find them in the life of the poor. We'll find them in the life of the displaced, the abandoned, the abused, the wearied and depressed down. Jesus isn't always going to be found in the places of privilege. Because the privileged folk don't need Jesus. But it'll always be found where the brokenness is found. And if the people of God who believe that to be true enter into those spaces, those people of God who claim to be the ones who confessed that Jesus is the reigning Lord, they will be able to say, Christ is here. Christ is with you. Now, I want to drive this home a lot more, mostly because I got more notes. <laughs> Come on now. But there's something else. In the second century, Ignatius of Antioch characterized heretics. Heretics. People who were anti-Christ. That's what heretic essentially means. This is how he characterized heretics. As having no regard for love, no care for the widow or the orphan or the oppressed of the bond or of the free, of the hungry or of the thirsty. That is how this profound early church leader, you just have to know how big a deal he was, characterized what a heretic was. That a heretic wasn't somebody who believed the wrong things. The heretic is someone who believed the right things and didn't live the right way of neighborly and enemy love. So that's a whole different reframing of how we talk about heretic in this country. There's this late first or second century writing called the Didache. It was a writing that the early church leaders put together. It's anonymous that helped churches establish themselves. Remember when the church was founded, they didn't have Bibles and they didn't have orders and they didn't know how to, like, quote, do church. Y'all know that the, the word for church is ecclesia, right? In the Greek, it's the word ecclesia. Everybody say ecclesia. Okay, that's a political word. That word was applied in political context in Greco and Roman politics, and it was meant to describe the people of the citizenry, the citizens who get together to talk about civil life. You with me? So ecclesia means citizens who get together to talk about civics. All right, that's the word that Paul uses for church. I just want to throw that out there. Heretics weren't people who just believed the wrong things and did the wrong things, and the church didn't just know what to do. So they wrote this document called the Didache, which helped understand like the liturgy of the church. And here's one of the things the Didache says. 
to the Christians. Share everything with your brother. Do not say, come on, say it with me. It is private property. Oh, my goodness. If you share what is everlasting, come on now, everlasting. Everybody say everlasting. You should be that much more willing to share things which do not last. Come on now, DDK. I don't know who DDK is. That's the logic. The logic at work in the, in, the, in the imagination of the Christian was, you have Jesus. You have eternal life. You have an inheritance that awaits for you. You can share a dollar. You can share a car. You can share a room. You can share your yard. You can share your time, your talent, your treasure. You may be like, oh, I ain't got any time. You're going to have eternal time. So find some time now. This was a whole different way of thinking. So when that first writing I read said, this is a new kind of person, this is what made the early church so unique. This is what made them peculiar, weird, strange. Irenaeus was a second century church leader in Turkey. This is what he wrote. Instead of the tithes which the law commanded, the Lord said to divide everything we have, everybody say it with me, with the poor. And he said to love not only our neighbors, everybody with me, but also our enemies. And to be givers and sharers, not only with the good, but also to be, uh-oh, liberal givers toward those who take away our possessions. Y'all, this is our story. This is our ancestry. These are our Christian descendants. This is the story from which we have been formed by. When we say Jesus is Lord, this is the story we're embracing as our own. I got more. Ambrosia of Milan. About AD 340-397 said this. He's a 4th century church leader. You are not making a gift of your possession to the poor person. You are handing over to him what is his. Oh, now. Ambrosia Milan trying to pick a fight. What you mean it's mine, yo? It's mine. He said, no. You got Jesus. Stuff you own, that's theirs. But for any of this to happen, we have to be with. Everybody say with. We have to be with. The withness of the church becomes the witness of the kingdom. We have to go. We have to welcome. We have to scatter, not just gather. We have to be about the Father's business on a Monday, not just wait for Sunday. We have to press in to love of God and love of neighbor now. When we come to this table so that come Monday we can love God and love our neighbor and love our enemies well. We need to give of our tithes and offerings to remember that we have a God who provides so that the church as a church can provide for those who do not have so that we also can be more generous on a Tuesday afternoon. Christians want to be pro-life. This is what pro-life looks like. Anything else? 
is Babylonian rhetoric. Martin Luther, this reformer of the 16th century, capturing the heart of Matthew 25, said that the poor are living images of God. The early church believed with all of its heart that to welcome the broken and the oppressed, the displaced, the abandoned, the unwanted, the disposable of society was to welcome Christ himself. And they also believed that to turn them away was to turn Christ away himself. That's what they believed. So when Christians get caught up in arguments of how to love the poor, the broken, the immigrant, the neighbor, the widow, the orphan, all these different things, and we turn these neighbors away, we're turning Jesus away. That's the irony of the church getting caught up in the arguments is we're arguing ultimately about whether we're going to welcome Jesus. And then we wonder why there's no blessing, why there's no beauty and no goodness, no healing. Because we pushed away the one who heals. Because of our own harm or hurt or hate. And it's a tragedy. Many admirers of Teresa of Calcutta, you might know her as Mother Teresa, would always ask her, how can you keep serving the poor, the sick, and the dying with such vigor? What's the secret? How do you do it? Here's her answer. She said, whenever I meet someone in need, it's really Jesus in his most distressing disguise. Matthew 25 was taken literally by the early church. To love the least of these was to love Christ himself. To give or serve the least of these was to give or serve Christ himself. It's like the old Jesuit saying, uh, see Jesus standing in the lowly places. Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these, read it with me, you've done to me. So beloved, here's where this series is going to go. I want to challenge us to learn to see differently. Everybody say, see differently. I just want to ask WCC to see differently. I can't do anything about all the other churches. We can't do anything about the churches over in Kalamazoo, Mississippi. I don't even know if that's a thing. We can't do anything about all the other places. Can't do anything really about how Capitol Hill sees anything and how leaders see. But we can do something about how we see people. And over the next several weeks, I want to ask us. I want to all but beg us to see differently. I want us to learn to see Christ in the displaced, in the disposable, in the broken, in the pressed down, in the poor, in the needy, in the unwanted, and the unwelcomed. I want to learn to see Christ in the pressed down, the marginalized. And if you want to know where Christ can be found, and then you go to the margins and learn to see Jesus there. Christ is always present with the last least left out and lonely. I got to tell you all, as someone who's walked with people out of homelessness for about 22 years of my life, I have tell you, I have found more Jesus in the streets and the alleyways and the tent cities than I have in church buildings. I have found more Jesus sharing a meal with a neighbor in the middle of the woods sitting on a cooler than I have sometimes sharing a, church, sharing a meal with a church in a, quote, fellowship hall. There are times when I know I needed to feel the presence of God in my life and I couldn't get him from a song or a sermon, so I went to my neighbor who had lived through social displacement and found Jesus. I'm telling you, that's my experience. And why is that the case? Because it's what Jesus said would happen. Is it hard? Yes. Is it heavy? Yes. Is it costly? Yes. 
But tell me what doesn't look more like Jesus than sacrifice and self-giving love. Tell me what doesn't look more like Jesus than being willing to press in by giving of myself. What makes us more like Jesus when we share in the sufferings of Christ is when we're willing to lose everything we're trying to hold on to for the good of a neighbor. Even if it means we lose some friends and some family members because we come off like some radicals. There's an old proverb, Proverb 19.17. When we do a 3E restoration training, we ask every person who gets trained in 3E to memorize this. So I'm going to try and get it today since we already know some things by heart. Let's see if we can get this. Everybody repeat after me. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord and he will reward the lender. Say it again. Kindness to the poor is a loan to the Lord and he will reward the lender. So when you give to that brother flying a sign on the corner of Chick-fil-A, you may think you're giving to him, but you're giving to who? You're giving to the Lord. So then what do you got to think through? What's he going to do with my money? It's not your problem. Because what, what did they say? Your money is actually not your what? <laughs> not my money. Do good, do love, do justice, do kindness, good compassion, trust God with the consequences. It's a lot easier when we're not managing things. And we're just doing because it's right. Love does what is right, not what is easy. Love does what is hard, not what is manageable. Love does the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And I was sick, you took care of me. I was in prison. I was in prison. And you visited me. Here's that verse. As we learn to see the withness of Christ in the last, least, left out, and lonely, we will become faithful witnesses of Christ's presence in the world. I'll say that again. As we learn to see the withness of Christ in the last, least, left out, and lonely, we become faithful witnesses of Christ's presence beloved i'm saying this because christ is found there and we all want to know the presence of christ and what christians will sometimes do is think we can pray harder study more bible sing more songs and even just give more money but we find the fullness of the presence of christ when we go be with the least last left out and lonely in our society that is where the presence of christ is found in a particular mysterious kind of beautiful kind of transformative way Christ is found near the brokenhearted because when hearts are broken all we have is Jesus this church grew not because of good preaching and good music this church found new life not because it had fancy facilities and great programs this church found new life many years ago because we welcomed a family living through homelessness into our life and they welcomed us into theirs. And then people outside of this church caught wind of what this church was doing and wanted to get in on it. And then out of that has birthed movements of things. And you know this, we told this story. But it wasn't the preaching. It wasn't the leadership. It wasn't the music. 
It wasn't the facility. It was the faithfulness of every single one of you who decided that no matter what the consequence, no matter how impossible it seemed, we were actually going to follow Jesus into the margins and be with the neighbors who needed to know that Christ was with them. That's why we are where we are and who we are. It's because of the faithfulness of a few who took Jesus seriously enough to follow. Because here's the hard part of this whole statement. To see Christ in the last least left out and lonely and to welcome and serve them may be to welcome and serve Christ himself. But it's also true to see Christ in the last least left left out and lonely and not welcome them is to not welcome Christ himself. That is why for the life of me, I can't understand why Christians, I just can't understand why Christians argue about this stuff. Like, there's a lot of stuff we can't figure out. Baptism, women's roles, men's roles, leadership, church polities, music, things we argue about all the time, all kinds of fancy doctrines. But the one thing we shouldn't have to argue about is whether or not we should love the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, or the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, the poor, the broken, the oppressed. Like, like how are we arguing over that? That's the one thing that we can walk away knowing that we know that we know that we know. Why? Because Christ welcomes us. So don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in the arguments. Because at the end of the day, whoever oppresses a poor man insults what? His maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. When we insult the immigrant, the foreigner, the poor, the historically marginalized voices and bodies of this society, when we, when we insult these neighbors, we're insulting Jesus. Don't insult Jesus, beloved. Choose to love him instead. Here's the last verse I'm going to share and I'm done. It's from Jeremiah, because I want you to see that this whole idea, and we're going to look at this over the next several weeks, is not just a New Testament idea, and it's not just an early church idea. This is grounded in the Hebrew story in the Hebrew scriptures that the prophets led. This is what it says. This is Jeremiah, by the way, Jeremiah chapter 22. This is what the Lord says, do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor. Everybody say, rescue from the hand of his oppressor. That's some active stuff. Who has been robbed? Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner. Come on now. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself. <laughs> I've always thought that funny. When God swears to God and he's like, I swear by myself that... <laughs> only God can do that I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin people from many nations will pass by this city and will ask one another why has the Lord done such a, th such a thing to this city and the answer will be because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped and served other gods woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness which is another word for injustice his upper rooms by injustice, making his countrymen work for nothing. Come on, God has something to say about economics, y'all. God has something to say about 
politics. God has something to say about how business practices are conducted. Look, woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his countrymen work for nothing. Woe to him for not paying them for their labor. Woe. You know what woe means? Woe to it means slow down. Woe in the biblical tradition means cursed. Cursed are them. Under curse they are. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? You know the prophets are a little snarky, right? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me? Come on now, say it again. Is that not what it means to know me? Lord, what does it mean to know you? That's what the worshipers, Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you. We want to know you, Lord. What does it mean to know you? He says to do justice. To share with the poor. To be content with what you have. To be generous. To defend the defenseless. To rescue the oppressed. Verse 17, but your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, and shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. I probably should have ended with that verse. Probably should have ended with the other one. Right? Like, you're like, give us more. But this is the bent. The bent toward humanity is sometimes the opposite of the bent toward Jesus. But we have the Spirit of God. Say, I have the Spirit of God. Say it. I have the Spirit of God. These words, be, albeit they're directly to kings of Judah, they, they apply to those who followed covenant. So here's how this works out, and then I'm down, I'll be done. So years ago, when Ian was about six, we were in Baltimore at a, an Orioles game. Was he six or eight, Allison? Do you remember? He was little. Yeah, maybe six, eight. I don't know. He was little. Now, I had gotten a little, I had gotten smart about some things. Like, I'd become smart about sociology and how poverty works and all the different things because, you know, I know things, right? Like, that's what I thought. And so I decided with, with Ian that we, weren't, we were no longer going to give to, um, we were no longer going to give to people who were flying signs on the street. We were no longer going to give to panhandlers because I had sociological reasons, right? Like why this wasn't healthy and why this was not good for the society and for other people living through homelessness. Like I had all kinds of good reasons. And so there was a person who was homeless, like on a corner as we were waiting across the street to go to Baltimore. And Ian says, hey, daddy, I think he's homeless. If he got some money, we got some money to give him some money. And I was like, oh, silly child. I said, buddy, I know that we've always done this, but you know, I've, I've learned some things. And I've just decided that I think it's wise because, you know, I started a nonprofit. You know that, but, like, I'm giving my son my receipts, right? Like, you know I'm smart, right? I said, so we've just decided we're going to do, we're not going to do that anymore because of these reasons. So my six- to eight-year-old looks at me straight up, straight up, no exaggeration whatsoever. He says, aren't you a Christian? I was like, go to your room. <laughs> I was like, but we're in Baltimore. And I said, yeah. Hold on. He wasn't done Jesus juking me yet. He said, and aren't you a pastor? <laughs> right. He didn't ask me what degrees I had, how many books I read. For Ian, it was real simple. Like, aren't you a Christian? So we get a man of 20. 
Like, I felt guilty. I went better than five. Like, because that's how obvious I think it ought to be for all of us. And the thing is, I'm still growing too. But here's what I believe. A community which embodies this kind of faithful presence, what I'm calling a withness as witness, contradicts the systems of coercion and exclusion that tell us who's valuable and invaluable, significant and insignificant, worthy and unworthy. This kind of community that follows through to this kind of faithful presence becomes a sign of hope that proves that self-giving love is possible. A commitment to this kind of withness as witness of seeing Christ in the last least left out and lonely offers us a new imagination, one that affirms our common humanity with others and the shared struggle that we all have. And we commit to no longer viewing neighbors as projects to fix, problems to solve, or prospects to save, rather persons to be embraced just as they are, not as they should be, because after all, that is what God has done for us. And so here's where it is. I have a letter that I want to send out to us later this afternoon. But I want to read the letter, and then I will be done. It's entitled, A Pastoral and Word of Encouragement. And then I asked you to read it because I know it's long. WCC family, I posted this quote by author and pastor Tony Scarcello on Facebook. He said this, Oftentimes American Christians aren't being persecuted for loving Jesus. We're being held accountable for not acting like him. This quote sent me down a rabbit trail of reading about actually persecuted Christians, which led me to 50 different countries, from Afghanistan to China to Ethiopia. It also reminded me of how pastors often stoke the fires of fear and anxiety with an us-versus-them culture war mentality. So here's why I'm emailing us. I'm thankful for you, WCC. You take following Jesus seriously. I know we aren't perfect, far from it, but we are learning to follow Jesus we know whose we are, and that helps us reimagine who we are. We have Christ. We have God. Christ has us. God has us. We have resurrection, our inheritance. Therefore, we can live out our divine assignment with full-on faithfulness, albeit imperfect, but ever so boldly. So let's talk about this idea of pro-life. We are pro-life, meaning we are for the things that make life possible. The biblical tradition calls this shalom, often translated peace, meaning human flourishing. It is what led our Lord to say to us, I have come that you can have life and life to the full. We've received this abundant life and are summoned to both exemplify and work toward this life by the power of God's Spirit so others may see what Jesus has done and is doing in and among us. Our brothers and sisters all over, even here, are talking big talk about pro-life. Some are waging culture wars, fighting, yelling, and screaming with all sorts of antagonism. We, WCC, have a chance to do something and do so quietly, deliberately, and purposefully. We have a chance to do what we believe and practice what we preach. So here's what I mean. Supporting our WCC families who are adopting children, this is pro-life. Welcoming this Afghan family who served our military personnel and was promised safety to our nation, this is pro-life. Caring for orphans in Kenya and Nicaragua, this is pro-life. 
supporting 3E Restoration, who partners with us in these local missions as we work with them to house and help socially displaced neighbors. This is pro-life. The buy two, give one away for Pineapple Inn and our beloved Lawanga family who live with these various disabilities so they can have hygiene products. This is pro-life. Eating breakfast with our beloved Lawanga neighbors beginning in August to be present with them and to demonstrate our love for them, to find Christ with them. This is pro-life. Supporting our single moms and dads. This is pro-life. Supporting our widowed members. This is pro-life. Supporting our neurodiverse children and adults. This is pro-life. Speaking into and embodying peacemaking in a culture of violence. This is pro-life. Doing racial justice or justice on all sorts of social levels. This is pro-life. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.